If you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for being here. We are, are glad that you came to worship with us. Um, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to get back into John this week. And uh, we'll be around verse 27. Uh, as you're turning there, let me re- remind you, and you'll hear a little bit more about this in a little bit, but I just want to make a push for this. Next Sunday is big day. We call it big day uh, because we want it to be a day that, that becomes big in so much as we have a, a lot of fun together. We do some fun things. We're going to do a chili cook-off this year. It's going to be first, second, third place prizes. Looking for some college kids uh, to help be the judges of that. Anybody that's hungry and wants to be a, a, a chili judge, come on and uh, just let us know. And then we're going to also present a trophy to the winner. That's right. There's going to be a a, a, a gosh ugly, ugly trophy presented to the winner. It's going to be great, very cheesy. And then there will be some door prizes also. So we're just going to have a big time. This will be after service next week. So invite your friends, invite family members to come and attend with you. Uh, let's make it a big fun day. Let's have a big time. Jasper will tell you more about how you can help with that at the end of the service today. All right. So in John, what we've been saying is that our goal each week is to see Jesus and to find life in his name. So John wrote at the end of his book in John chapter 20, verse 31, that the purpose of these writings, the reason I've written these things down, is so that you may see that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that having seen him, you would believe in him, and having believed him, you would find life in his name. And so uh, this is our goal each week. Every week we come together, we're looking to see Christ. And what is it that John is writing about here to his audience, us, uh, his original audience, and, and now us, that, that he would want us to see in Christ, that would give us life in his name. I think today presents itself really easily. But let me set it up this way. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Jesus rides in on the back of a donkey's colt, and he is hailed then, he is praised as the new king of Jerusalem. I mean, they're expecting him to come in, set up his kingdom now, and reign forever. All right, this is what they're hoping for. What you begin to see this week is they begin to see that, that things aren't going to happen quite like they hoped they would. That, that they're going to be a little bit disappointed by the end of our text this morning. And, uh, and, and that's very significant uh, because the king they were looking for wasn't the king they needed. But the king they needed is the one that God provides. And so this is what we see in Christ. So they're hailing him as king of Israel. He announces in that moment that his time has come, that his hour is drawing near. Soon he's going to be crucified. And today's text picks up in the middle of his address to the crowd that was around him at this time. And so there's a lot happening in the text. Uh, But I've noticed each week... Alan and Jasper will congratulate me and say, man, you did a good job when the sermon is short. So I'm going to try to keep it short this morning uh, for their praise. Amen? All right. There's probably one or two more of you that would feel the same way. So here we go. Um, What we're going to look at is this overarching element of the text, which is this. If you're taking notes, I'd like for you to write this down. We're going to mention this a few times throughout. I forgot to give it to projection. That's my bad. but, But just listen. You can write it down. It's pretty easy. Jesus glorified God by bearing our darkness, so that we can glorify God by bearing His light. Jesus glorified God by bearing our darkness, so that we can glorify God by bearing His light. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We are excited to be in Your Word. We are grateful, Lord, that You've written this uh, to encourage our hearts, to draw us to You, uh, to save sinners. 
And Father, we pray now that you would continue the work in us that you've already begun. Lord, for some in here, I pray that you would begin a work in them. Lord, that you would save them, draw them to yourself. Father, I pray for each of us as we walk out of here, help our lives to be impacted, to be changed by what we understand about the cross and what Christ has done for us, the way that he glorified God in giving his life and bearing our sin so that we can glorify God by walking in the light, by becoming a, ch a child of the light of Christ. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, verse 27, chapter 12. Now, remember this is Jesus speaking, now is my soul troubled. Let's just stop right there. So Jesus makes this announcement, now is my soul troubled. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus' soul was troubled by sin and God's wrath. Jesus' soul was troubled in this moment by sin and God's wrath. The word troubled here means to be unsettled. It's, it's a deep-seated, he says, my soul, so we know that that's a, the very center of who he is. He says, I'm unsettled at the very center of who I am. The word uh, troubled means to be stirred up or in turmoil. So at the very center of who Christ is, he's stirred up, he's in turmoil, he's unsettled. Jesus' death troubled him because it would involve separation from his father. Jesus is speaking now. He's just announced, now has my time come. And now he says, now is my soul troubled. His soul is not troubled because of the cross. His soul is troubled because of what the cross represents. Namely, that he is going to bear God's wrath for sins on himself. And he's going to take the sin of all who would believe in him. He's going to bear it on his shoulders and that that means in that moment he's going to be separated from the Father. This deeply troubled Christ. This is John's Garden of Gethsemane moment, as you might remember from the other Gospels. John doesn't record the turmoil of Jesus in the Garden, but he does record the turmoil of Jesus in this moment. In the Garden we see Jesus say these words, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Let this pass from me. But then he commits himself right there in that moment to God's glory. He says, but ultimately your kingdom come. And so here what we see is that he does record, John records, the turmoil over bearing our sin and facing God's wrath on our behalf. I want you to take note. Again, let me mention this because it's often preached that Jesus' soul was troubled because of the cross, because he was going to die. That, that's not the troubling part of his soul. The troubling part is that the crucifixion represents bearing sin our sin, and facing God's wrath, and that his soul is now deeply troubled by that. Which as I was reading this text, as I was studying through this this, this week and last, it led me to begin to ask myself, when was the last time my soul was deeply troubled over my sin? And I also asked the follow-up question, is God's wrath only an otherworldly thing to me? Is it just simply something that I think I'll never understand? Is it simply something that's insignificant to me? Or is my sin significant and so therefore God's wrath is also significant? I'll admit to you, I am guilty of trying to overlook my own sin at times, trying to trivialize it trying to act like it's not really that big of a deal, that maybe it's under my control. 
But we have to ask the question, how should we deal with our sin? How should we think about our sin? James 4, 8-10 through 10 provides really good wisdom here. James writes, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God then? How do we draw near in such a way that God will draw near to us? He says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners. So he's not beating around the bush, right? He's calling it like it is. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know what it means to be double-minded? It means to say that we love the Lord, yet to live as though we don't love the Lord. It means to say that we want to live righteous and holy before God, yet we choose not to live righteous and holy before the Lord. It means to say that we're committed to Christ while in the same breath or in the same action showing that we are everything but committed to Christ. In fact, that it's our worldly desires that mean more to us than Christ does. So he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Then he says this, be wretched and mourn and weep Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So often I think that if I can trivialize my sin, if I can hide my sin enough and kind of exalt myself in that, like, oh, I'm not as bad as I think I am or I'm not as bad as as it looks like I am, if I can make myself look better, if I can put on this facade and act like I've got things together, then what happens is I begin to exalt myself. I begin to think that, man, I've got it together. I'm doing this well. I'm living for Christ really well. Sure, I, I messed up here, but that was just a small thing. That's no big deal. Oh, I did that same thing again. That's just a small thing. It's no big deal. Oh, wait, one more time I'm going to do that same thing. And you know what? It's, not, it's really not that big of a deal. Let me just hold on to that a little while longer. You see what I'm saying? We'll do that with sin. We'll hang on to sin. We'll treat it as a pet. We'll keep it around. But Christ is calling for holiness. God is calling for our holiness. He is calling for us to forsake sin, to be wretched over our sin, to mourn over our sin, to to have our joy turn to gloom over sin, our laughter turn to weeping over our sin. Sin is a massive problem in your heart and in my heart, and it requires massive intentionality to overcome it. it. It requires of us a steadfastness Our sin is no laughing matter. It's a serious matter. God's wrath should not be taken lightly. It is a serious thing. Both of those troubled Jesus to His core. Your sin and God's wrath troubled Jesus to His core. He wasn't thinking about the guards that would spit on Him or the people who would mock Him. He knew He had the victory. He knew that He would press forward for the joy that was set before Him as Hebrews tells us. That in God, He was going to be raised to life again. The moment that troubled Christ was the moment He would bear your sin. That the moment that He would go to the cross and and be forsaken by God in that moment. Because of your sin, not His. That's the moment that troubled Jesus. He knew that God would raise Him from the dead. He knew that God would seat Him in the heavenlies. Yet His soul was troubled. And I say, let his troubled soul serve as an example to us that our souls too should be troubled over our sin. That that our sin matters. That it's a big deal. If, If Christ, the very Son of God, was troubled, so then should we also be troubled by our sin. Lord, forgive us for playing with sin. 
for keeping it close like it's some family pet. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you convict and devastate our souls now lest we lose our life for eternity. Amen? And woe to any of us who thinks that God's sovereignty over our salvation and, and over our perseverance means that, quote-unquote, we're straight with God no matter what. Once saved, always saved. Woe to us in this. 1 John 3, 9-10 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In other words, no one born of God goes on sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Listen, if you claim to be born of God, then you cannot simply go on sinning without remorse and repentance. It does not say that you will not sin. It says that you will not go on sinning. In other words, you're caught in an affair. You won't go on in that sin. You're flirting with a coworker. You won't go on in that sin. You're telling lies to cover up mistakes you're making, or you're telling lies to cover up theft. I don't know. Whatever the sin is that we keep around, you're, you're looking at pornography. And you, you can't stop, but you cover it up. You delete your browser history over and over and over again, and you make a way for sin in your life. God is saying through His Word, you cannot continue in those things. We must repent. We must confess sin, ask for forgiveness, and repent of those things. Turn from those things to God, who certainly welcomes us because of the blood of Christ, not our own righteousness. I'm not preaching a work salvation here. I'm preaching that our salvation, which is one of Christ, ought to produce fruit in our lives. We ought to live in such a way that we look like the children of God. And we act like the children of God. That whatever we say and do, we're bringing glory to the Father. We're not hiding in the shadows, hoping nobody finds out the true us. Confess the true you now before the true you kills you. Rest assured it will if you do not. Take care, brothers and sisters, in watching your life, lest we show that we're the ones in Hebrews chapter 6 of whom it is said that they tasted the goodness of the life that is with Christ. They peeked in and saw the good things. They looked like they were a part of it, only to prove that they had never truly committed their lives to the Lord. They just wanted to be a part of the, of the church life. They wanted some of the good that comes from it. The camaraderie, maybe. The community that you get with others. They wanted to, to look good in their community. But there's a grave warning there that those who do that, who appear that way yet are not that, fall away. At the end of their lives, if there's no commitment, they've fallen away regardless of how they looked to the watching world. Now's a good time to remind you that Jesus glorified God by bearing our darkness so that we can glorify God by bearing His light. This is where we're headed this morning. Verse 27 and 28a, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. In the middle of His trouble, Jesus commits Himself to God's glory. 
Jesus commits himself to God's glory. We see here the conflict between his desire to avoid God's wrath, which would be disobedience for him. He was sent for the mission of dying for God's children. He was sent for that, to gather unto himself his sheep, as he says in John chapter 10. He was sent for that very purpose. If he goes against that, that's disobedience. He would be disobeying God. But what happens is, is he, he commits himself in the moment of that trouble, knowing what's going to happen, he recommits. He says, committing myself to God's glory. Father, glorify your name. And what we see is his, de- his desire to obey God completely overrules anything in him which would say, take this cup from me. Jesus asked, what shall I do? Essentially saying, what shall I do? Run? Should I run away from this? Should I leave this life that that God has given me, this mission that He's given me? And then He immediately commits Himself to God's glory through His obedience. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. What purpose? I think that's twofold. On one hand, His purpose is to bear God's wrath on the cross for our sin. On the other hand, His purpose is to glorify the name of God in all the earth. How will He do that? He'll do that by bearing God's wrath on the cross for our sin. In doing so, Jesus shows His disciples, He shows us His commitment to the Father's will and His commitment to the Father's glory by unveiling His troubled soul for the world. He's showing, now is my soul troubled. He uttered those words out loud. He didn't have to let us into that moment, but Christ was fully man and fully God. What we see is is He's showing us that state of trouble and what it looks like to commit ourselves to the Lord, even though we're in, mid, in the middle of great suffering. As Warren Wearsby points out, he says, Jesus shows us that in the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers we can pray. Either, Father, save me, or, Father, glorify your name. Often in our suffering, I'll speak for myself, often in my suffering, I tend to whine and complain, often without even praying about my situation. I'll just gripe about it. But I ought to learn, we ought to learn, by Christ's example here, to pray this way. Father, through this suffering, through this pain, glorify your name and trust that he will do it. Look at what happens. Verse 28, part B. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. You see, Jesus was sure of his his mission. He was sure that the Father would be glorified if he would go through with this. But what he's showing, or what God wants to show, is that Christ is my Son. That this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, as he says, at the the baptism of Christ. This is one of three times in the Bible um, where the Father speaks audibly from heaven to Jesus during his life. It happens once at his baptism, it happens again at the transfiguration, and then it happens here. 
In each one, God is placing His blessing on His Son. In each one, He's confirming that Jesus is the Savior. In each one, He's confirming that people ought to follow Him. That people ought to listen to Him. Ought to believe Him. That this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. A.W. Pink says about this event, he says its purpose was to strengthen the disciples' faith and to remove all excuses from unbelievers. God had already glorified Himself, he says. He had done it. How? Well, He'd done it in so many other ways, but if we're thinking just specifically about the life of Christ and what's about to happen, He had done it in the incarnation of Christ, the coming to earth of Christ. Angels appear in a field and begin to sing glory, glory, as Christ is born. Peace between man and God was declared on the day that Christ was born because of this moment where peace would finally be won at the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So we see that God glorifies Himself in the Incarnation. He glorifies Himself throughout the work of Christ. All the, the miracles that we've seen Christ doing. And He was going to glorify Himself again very shortly through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And those who were present tried to discredit Him. Some of them say, well, it just thundered. Some of them say, an angel spoke. And 2,000 plus years later, we still have people responding to God this way. Seeking to discredit what He says. Seeking to discredit His work. God is plainly speaking through His Word. God is plainly at work through the things that are happening in the world today. Through the things that are happening in your life today. And people refuse to see it. Often I refuse to see it myself. People are spiritually blind. And Jesus explains that the voice wasn't for His benefit. It was for theirs. Mainly in that as He is lifted up on the cross, and then again at His resurrection, people will know that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, He is the Savior of sinners, and hopefully they would find life in His name. Jesus glorified God by bearing our darkness so that we can glorify God by bearing His light. Verse 31-36 through now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show about what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on a cross. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Final thing I want you to write down, and we'll explain it in four different ways here. God glorifies his name. God does glorify his name. We see it play out in four ways. Number one, or number A in your notes, is by judging the world through Christ. God glorifies His name by judging the world through Christ. Christ announces, now is the judgment of this world. In the death of Jesus, we have the decisive dividing line between the condemned and the saved. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, treasuring Him above all else, you are united 
to him. And his death is your death. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we're united in His death. His death is our death, but we're also united in His condemnation. And that His condemnation is our condemnation. If you are in Christ, His condemnation is also your condemnation. Romans 8, 1-4 through there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So apart from Christ, you are condemned. In Christ, there is no condemnation for you. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Meaning that we could never perfectly obey the law. It was We are weakened by our flesh, our sinful flesh. And so therefore Christ perfectly obeys the law, perfectly sacrifices Himself so that He can give us His righteousness by His death. Comes through faith in Him. And he says, For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Christ, we no longer live by the flesh. In Christ, we are born of the Spirit of God and we now live by the Spirit of God. And if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you decide, I will never do such a thing, then friend, you will stand condemned by your sin, and by your rejection of God's forgiveness found in Christ on that day. There's just no way around it. God glorifies Himself by sending His Son to bear the darkness, to bear the condemnation of sins for all who trust Christ as their Savior. Secondly, we see that God glorifies Himself by casting out Satan. This is one of my favorite parts of this text this morning what this means for us the implications of this for our lives are incredible so if you're going to listen at all now's the time now will the ruler of this world be cast out he says and in what way was satan cast out in the death of christ well satan in the death of christ experienced his own death he experienced his own defeat on the cross you see, in Satan's mind, it was his final push to stop God's work of salvation. In, in Satan's mind, when Jesus is raised up on that cross and breathes his last breath, Satan's thinking to himself, I have just dealt a death blow to God. I just ended his son. He's not going to reign forever now. He's dead. Wrong. <laughs> he failed. It isn't the final defeat of Satan, no. We see in Revelation chapter 12, I believe, that Satan is still at work trying to deceive as many as he can until that final day of his defeat. So it's not the final defeat of Satan. That will come at the return of Christ, but it does guarantee his final defeat. The cross of Christ guarantees that the, final, the final defeat of Satan on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. 
He bore our darkness, if you will. He stripped Satan of the one weapon that he could use to damn us, which is our unforgiven sin. Satan has been disarmed. Though he may accuse you over and over again, if you are in Christ, you have no unforgiven sin in your life. Christ's blood covers it all. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Not conquered Satan by their own good works. Not conquered Satan in their own righteousness. Not conquered Satan in anything else other than by the blood of Christ. It's by the blood of Christ that we have conquered Satan. Amen? The God of this world is cast out of the courtroom. Our case is settled. Our judgment is passed. Our sins are forgiven. Our accuser has no records left in his folder on which to build his case against you. We have passed from death to life. We have been regenerated and justified by God through Christ. We are destined for a new home and nothing will stop us. Romans 8, 35-39, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, we ought to be shouting. I pray you are inside. There's a lot of Baptists in here. We're not going to shout a lot, are we? Praise God for what He's done for us. Praise God for what He's done in us. God has glorified Himself by casting Satan out at that moment which Satan thought was the moment he won the war. It actually marked the moment of his own defeat. Praise God for flipping the script on that. For crushing the head of the serpent as He bruised the heel of our Savior. Praise God for it. We see that God glorifies His name also by drawing all people to Himself. God glorifies His name by drawing all people to Himself. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning when I am raised up on a cross with my arms outstretched wide, will draw all people to Myself. When I'm lifted up refers both to His crucifixion, being lifted up on a cross, but it also refers to His resurrection and His ascension, lifted up in glory at the right hand of God as we see Him described. He says, in that moment I will draw all people to Myself, meaning that the cross has a sort of universal attraction. It means that all kinds of people all over the globe, every nation, every tribe, every tongue can be saved through the cross of Christ. It's important to note that all doesn't mean every single person. If all meant every single person and some die and go to hell, then we know that Jesus' atonement wasn't good enough. And I'm not prepared to say that. I hope you're not either. It's enough. It's more than enough. So all can't mean every single person. Rather, it means people from everywhere in the world and from every background that exist will be united to Christ. Jews and Gentiles as we see here. Remember the Greeks had just come to see Him. 
The Greeks are looking for him. That's bananas in that day. Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor, black, white, yellow, red, doesn't matter. Christ is drawing a beautiful, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic people to himself to be presented as his bride on the day of his return. And what a beautiful bride it will be. It's going to be magnificent. It's not just going to be a bunch of white people sitting around celebrating the Lord. Praise God. Praise God it won't be. I'm appalled that white people even think that sometimes. Do they not realize they serve a Jesus who wasn't white? We, We need one another. We need to represent the full body of Christ. Christ is drawing all people to Himself and praise God He does. If He didn't, I wouldn't be here. Christ is saving people to present a beautiful bride to Himself. One that represents all of His creation. Every man and woman are created in the Imago Dei according to the image of Christ. According to His own image, God creates man. Creates woman. So that all people are a perfect representation of who God is. That alone is worth our respect. That alone is worth our celebration. It's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's for all people. It gives us hope as we take the gospel, doesn't it? As we take it and preach it, we have hope that God is going to draw all kinds of people to Himself. That it will be effective. Therefore, we offer salvation freely. We offer salvation truly to every single person so that whoever believes on Him might have eternal life. God glorifies Himself in the death of His Son by making salvation available to all mankind. But the crowd here, they don't like it, do they? They don't like this idea of a dying Christ. They don't like this idea of a Savior who's going to die, a Messiah who's not going to live forever, at least in their mind. They wanted Him to reign as King on earth now, in that moment and forever. They used part of the Old Testament to confirm this. Probably recalling texts like 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Daniel 7, in which all of these things state something to the effect of His kingdom reigning forever. In their mind, when Christ came to earth, He was just going to reign forever. That was going to be it. So they're thinking that, while at the same time, if they knew those, they should have also known texts like Isaiah 53, which say that, God, that Jesus would be stricken, that He would be smitten by God, that the weight of our sin would be upon His shoulders, that by His stripes on His back, we would be healed of our sins. They thought, how could Jesus be the Messiah if He's going to die? Who is this Messiah, they say? But Jesus doesn't answer their questions because He doesn't owe them an answer. His life is more than exemplified that He is who He says He is. And that voice from heaven moments earlier is just another example of it. But what He also knows is this, that the answer would be clear in His resurrection who He was. That in just a few short days, people would know, oh snap, He is Jesus. He is Christ. He's the Messiah. And this would spell 
the most important fact of this text for all of us today, that God would glorify himself by making believers children of light. God would glorify himself by making believers children of light. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is where the text gets very personal for you. God has revealed his glory in his son. John 1 told us that Jesus came and he was a perfect picture of the glory of God revealed, that it was revealed in the radiance of his beauty. Hebrews chapter 1 would tell us the same thing, that the perfect, that, that Jesus, upon Jesus was the perfect imprint of God the Father. That in him, as John says, we have a glory that is full of both grace and truth. This is the beauty of Christ that stands before them right now. It's the beauty of Christ being offered to you right now. That God has revealed His glory in His Son and that that glory ought to be treasured above everything else in this life. It's revealed in His coming. It's revealed in Jesus' coming to earth. It's revealed in His death on a cross. It's revealed in His resurrection. By it, what we see here is that the world is judged. That Satan is defeated and that sinners are now drawn to a Savior. That there's hope for a sinner. But now only one question remains. What will you do with Jesus? Will you trust Jesus as your Savior? Will you welcome the forgiveness of your sins and treasure His blood which brings that forgiveness above everything else? Will your heart say, I believe that my judgment is over and I have received, sorry, and I have passed from death to life. And I believe that Satan has no claim on me. And I believe that Christ purchased me and secured me forever by his blood. And I am no longer my own. I belong to him. He is my Savior and my God. If you believe in Christ this way, Jesus says that you will become a child of light. In other words, you don't just see the glory of God anymore. You're not on the outside looking in at it. But if you'll believe this, you become and you begin to shine forth in a dark world with the glory of God. That it becomes a part of who you are. In fact, it becomes the most important part of who you are. It is now your new identity in Christ. That that old man has passed away and behold, the new has come. You are a new creation. New life is upon you to live in the world as a, as a sojourner, as an ambassador for the Lord. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Let us shine forth in the world. Let people look upon our good works, upon our good deeds, upon our holiness, upon our striving after God, upon our apologies and our humbling ourselves and see the glory of God within us. Amen?
Amen. Jesus glorified God by bearing our darkness so that we can glorify God by bearing His light. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning?